Michael, when we first contacted you to do the interview for the six-stage plot structure, we thought it'd be fun for you to break down a script, applying your structure. Um, you obliged. We were very happy to hear that. Um, you chose A Few Good Men from 1992. Uh, curious why you chose the movie. N nothing against it, but... <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope you're not miserable no, during the not whole at all. discussion. No, no. Uh, a number of reasons. Uh, the first and foremost is just one of my all-time favorite movies, and I don't really enjoy discussing movies that I don't love. I don't really like using bad examples and so on. I think it's just one of the great American screenplays and movies. Uh, certainly the best courtroom drama since you know, 12 Angry Men, and I'd have a hard time equivocating between those two. Um, also because it was written, it's based on a play written by Aaron Sorkin, he wrote the script and went on to become huge as a, both a screenwriter and a television writer because this was all predated Sports Night and West Wing and uh, so on. So he's now one of the best known screenwriters in Hollywood, so I thought that would be interesting to look at it that way. But also the main purpose is to kind of clarify uh, and make simpler my particular approach to story structure and character arc. And because this follows that pattern or that formula or whatever you want to call it so clearly and in a, such a straightforward way, I thought it, I think it's a great example because it's very easy to see as you pick the movie apart where all the elements that I talk about in structure and character are there. So I just thought this would be a good, fun one to talk about. Okay, excellent. Well, let's get started. So uh, we'll take what the setup, which is uh, stage one or in act one. You want to start? Uh Sure. Talking about yeah, let me let me give a little backdrop here. So for those of you who haven't seen the other interview we did going into depth about my approach to the six age structure and character arc, I'll review some of that so you'll be caught up and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Uh, in my approach to structure or plot structure, I find that successful movies are always divided into six basic stages. And those stages are created by five key turning points in the script or in the movie. And even more to the point or even neater, those turning points always occur at essentially the same place in every movie. So whatever happens at the 10% point of Titanic is going to happen at the 10% point of Zootopia and is going to happen at the 10% point of A Few Good Men. So these are things that I think it behooves screenwriters and filmmakers to model because if this has worked consistently in so many successful movies, you probably want to replicate this approach in your own writing. Um, and in terms of character arc, I'm going to get into that and explain that as we go through and I start talking about how these characters are revealed and how we go deeper into the characters and what their inner journey and their arc are and so on like that. So we'll get to that part. As far as the six stages are concerned, the first stage is, as you say, what I call the setup. It's the first 10% of the movie or of the screenplay. And as a screenwriter or filmmaker, there are a few key things you need to do in that stretch. First thing you must do is introduce the hero of the movie. Hero is just my term for the protagonist, the main character. It's the one we're rooting for, the character we empathize with or identify with. It's the character whose desire defines the plot of the story and whose desire drives it forward. Um, a hero, just to clarify, is not someone who is heroic. 
uh, unless maybe you're talking about a superhero in a movie, but even then at the beginning, not so much probably. A, what I call a hero is more a character who has the potential to become heroic. And in the movie, especially if there's a movie with a character arc where the hero has to find a certain degree of emotional courage, that's part of what the story's about is how do they find their own heroism? How do they move into the truth of who they are? So in the setup of A Few Good Men, we begin with something I call an outside action opening. Most of the time in screenplays, the hero is the first character on the page. And when you submit your script to be read, the assumption of the reader will usually be whoever's name appears first, that's the hero of the story. But you can oftentimes seduce the, hero, seduce the reader or the audience into the story more easily if you begin with a moment of great conflict. So the movie will begin with something that does not involve the hero. You'll see this in uh, Da Vinci Code, where it starts with a murder there, or a number of other thrillers and so on. So in A Few Good Men, it opens at Gitmo at Guantanamo Bay Base, and we see a soldier getting, we're not quite aware of it at the time, but we see a soldier getting smothered and find out he is dead, he will die. Then we cut to um, the, another character in the movie. So we're still delaying the revelation of the hero. The effect of that, while it's a little dangerous sometimes to have the reader keep wondering, well, who am I rooting for here? It does create more and more anticipation. Okay, well, who's gonna, who's gonna be leading this parade here? Where is the hero? So we're introduced to um, Joanne Galloway, the Demi Moore character. Um, I'll talk more about how she functions in the story where we meet her and we find out there's been this death. The Navy wants her as an internal affairs attorney to look into it. They want her to sort of supervise. She hopes they'll let her be the attorney, but she's not. They're going to assign her another attorney. So all of that is set up and we're wondering, well, who is going to be assigned to this? And since the audience already knows the star is Tom Cruise, they probably have figured out it's going to be him. And then we cut to the hero. Notice all of this is still in this first 10%. So about five pages or five minutes in, then it cuts to the Tom Cruise character, um, uh, Daniel Caffey. I'm looking down at notes because I'm not always good at remembering character names, but we meet him and what do we, meet when we first see him. He's out hitting a baseball or a softball to one of the other, you know, sailors or whatever. And another attorney comes up and he's not shown up at a meeting. Caffey hasn't. And the guy wants to plea bargain a deal and he wants to demand five years in prison and so on. And we see Caffey plea bargain that down to uh, no jail time, just a misdemeanor and so on because he says the guy just had a bag of oregano. He didn't even know it was, he just thought it was marijuana and so on. So what does this show us? And he finally wins. So it shows us a few things. First of all, because we feel sort of sorry for this guy who had the bag of oregano, we start to like Caffey immediately because he's on the side of this, this other guy. He's a likable guy. And he seems well liked by the guy he's playing catch with or hitting the ball to and so on. So being likable is one key way to establish empathy with a hero. And that's one of the main things you have to do as soon as you introduce the hero. Another thing we find out, he's highly skilled. 
So we admire the character. He may be kind of slick and quick about how he does it, but it's kind of amazing how he's able to get what was going to be five years in the brig down to no jail time and a misdemeanor and just uh, just uh, uh, and, and something on his record that's going to be meaningless. In other words, he gets the guy off. So we're very admiring of that about him. And the way he does it is very funny. And we're drawn to characters who make us laugh, oftentimes because they also have the courage to say things we wouldn't have the courage to say. They're not real politically correct. And he's very sarcastic and puts people down and so on. So all of this is to introduce us to this character and create empathy with this hero. And then we come to the 10% point of the movie. So all of this has brought us to the 10% point of the movie. About 10 minutes in, the movie altogether is about two hours and 10 minutes long if you take away the credits. So it's very close to 120, 130 minutes. So let's just rough it out and say it's 120 minutes long and we'll divide the percentages by that. So somewhere around the 10% would be around page 12. At page 10, or, or at 10 minute, at the 10 minute mark, Caffey goes and is assigned this new case. He's got to defend these guys who are accused of this crime down at Guantanamo Bay. And then right at 12 minutes, he goes and reports to Galloway. This is what I term the opportunity of the movie. It is the first new thing that has happened to the hero. Everything we've seen up to this point is and must be the everyday life the hero is living and has been living for some time. He's a hotshot attorney. He hasn't been in the Navy very long. He's very cynical. He doesn't really care. He doesn't follow the rules much. But this is who he's been for some time. But now there's this new event, and that is he's assigned this case. He moves into now stage two, what I call a new situation, someplace the hero has never been. And during this new situation, he has to figure out, okay, what is going on in this new world I've created? It's a, it's a period of questioning. It's a period of figuring out what is expected of me here? What am I gonna do? What is my goal in this situation? How am I gonna go about doing that? He's gonna gradually formulate the goal that will drive through the story and start formulating a plan for it. But all of these next scenes are about him figuring this out. So he goes to Galloway and he gets more information about the, the uh, Marines who've been accused. And then they have this banter. And she's very critical, very disappointed because he's, you know, he's never been in a courtroom. She can tell he doesn't care. He's very cynical and so on. He goes into this meeting with Weinberg, who is his best friend and also has just been assigned to this. We'll come back to the characters of Galloway and Weinberg in just a little while because they both are what I call reflection characters. But these two stages on this outer journey level um, take us up to the one quarter mark, the end of act one. And at the end of act one, at the 25% mark, it actually happens right at the 35 minute mark. If you're watching the video of this, they are going to leave for Guantanamo Bay. So it's no longer about figuring out what they have to do. What he has to do is he has to defend and try to get either an acquittal or what his initial goal is, a reduced sentence for these two guys who are accused of um, murder, 
or accused of murdering this other Marine by strangling him in his bed. So that's basically stage one and stage two as far as the outer journey are concerned. Okay, um, one thing I forgot to say or we forgot to say for sort of a commercial interruption is as I go through this, if those of you watching the video would like a chart of my six-stage structure to follow along, if you look down underneath the video, there should be a link there that goes to uh, some version of my website, storymastery.com. If you click that, it'll link through so you can find out how we will send you a free copy of the chart that you can download. So you can just follow along with these six stages if you like as we go through them. So there. Free of charge. Isn't that cool? Okay, so I was leaving off at the end of the first two stages, the setup and the new situation. Before we go on to the hero's pursuit of this goal, though, I want to talk a bit about the uh, inner journey for the character. What I mean by the inner journey is that while the outer journey is a journey of accomplishment, it means at the plot level of the movie, at the surface level, is about a character who wants some visible goal. There's a visible finish line that that character wants to cross. So in the case of A Few Good Men, he wants to get them off of this murder charge. He wants to, he starts out wanting to get a good reduced sentence and then he'll end up wanting to get an acquittal. So that's his goal and it's gonna carry us all the way from the beginning of act two to the climax. But if you go deeper with the character to what I call the inner journey, it is a journey of transformation. And now we're talking about how the character changes through the course of the story. It's a transformation actually from living in fear to living courageously. And so in stage one, in the setup, when you first meet the hero, one of the things you want to notice is this hero will always be stuck in some way. Well, we, the audience or the reader, will get a sense that there's something that the character is just tolerating. They're not really living fully. They're not living a fulfilled life. They're not being all they can be, if you will. And we can see when we meet Kathy that he's kind of there. He's just very flippant about things. He's not committed to anything. We find out it's sort of subtly presented at first, but his father was a great lawyer who became the Attorney General of the United States before he passed away. Drops a little hint of something might be going on more than just he's a hotshot attorney but he is stuck in this way. That's gonna be the first indication of his arc, his transformation. Now to understand how the transformation for a character works, you need to ask yourself a few things about the character. And the first of those is, what is the character's wound? How is this character wounded in the past? Uh, a wound could be a painful event, it could be an ongoing situation, but in any case, it's something painful that the hero or the character who is going through the arc believes they've dealt with. They, if you ask them, they would say, no, that's in the past. I'm over that now. It doesn't have any effect on me. But we can see and we will learn that it affects them greatly. Because when we are wounded in real life, just as when a character is wounded or has been wounded at the start of a movie, then that traumatic event is going to generate a belief a belief about how the world works, a belief about how people will behave in certain situations. 
just some kind of belief, it's always a limiting belief of some, in some way, connected to that pain. So because his father was so successful and apparently had a lot of expectations of him, and because he died before Kathy was too old, because he's not that old even in the movie now, that was his wounding experience. And the belief that came out of that is the belief that he is not good enough. He can't match up with his father, with the memory of his father. We might not realize that watching the movie just this far, just in the first act, but there are lots of hints that are going to be dropped, as I will point out in a second. But once the character has this belief that they ingrain subconsciously, they don't, aren't aware that this wound has anything to do with it, then that belief is going to create a fear a fear of replicating the pain that they suffered in the past in a way. So if he believes he's not good enough to match up with his father, then his fear is ever having to go into a courtroom. Because as soon as he actually does a trial, you know, whatever, however you say that, as soon as he really becomes a real lawyer and really defends someone in a court of law, then everybody's going to see that he's not as good as his father was and that would be too painful for him. So what a character does to avoid this fear that grows out of this belief that stems from this wound in the first place is the character will create what I call an identity. That's sort of the money idea in all of this. By identity, I mean a persona. The character will create a false self, a mask that they present to the world. It's a mask that they're not aware is a mask. They think it's who they truly are but this will succeed at protecting them from experiencing the, the pain or the fear that grew out of that belief that came from the wound a long time ago. So what does Kathy do? He says, well, if I am not gonna meet up with my, if I'm not gonna match my father, if it's gonna be very painful and scary for me to go into a courtroom, I won't do it. So he becomes the great plea bargainer and there's even a time when um, Weinberg says he's considered one of our best attorneys because he successfully plea bargained 42 cases in 60 days or something like that. Like that's a claim to fame, which I assume it is, but it shows this guy's identity is, I don't go into a courtroom, I just figure out the best way to plea bargain and I'm very good at it so I get the, the, the best plea I can for my client. So that's the identity he is fully in in stage one. And in stage two, he's going to stay in that identity, but he's going to get a glimpse of what living in what I call his essence might be. The essence being what would be left if you stripped away this false self. It's who the character has the potential to become. And what's his glimpse? His glimpse is when he meets Galloway and then he meets his defendants. Because Galloway, there's a line where she says, be careful when you go down to Gitmo, they're very fanatic. Those Marines there are very fanatic. And Weinberg says, about what? And she says, about being Marines. And then when he meets his clients, they say, we have a code and an honor, and that's what they live by. And it will come to a point where they don't even want a plea bargain because it would go against their code. This is him getting a glimpse of what being true to oneself might be. He has no code, he has no honor at all. He's just slick, what, what does she call him? A, you know, a bargain basement, bizarre kind of uh, hustler as an attorney. 
But that's all his identity. But to be in his essence would mean he'd have to find a code. He'd have to find his truth. He'd have to be closer to his defendants who live that way. And there are lots of hints about that in stage two. He goes in and he says to Galloway, she says, you've got to defend them. And he says, from what I understand, these guys don't need a lawyer. They need a priest making one of his flippant remarks. And her response is, no, they need a lawyer. And that line will be repeated many times. Are you going to be a lawyer? Are you going to be a lawyer? Because that's her shorthand for, are you going to do what you have the potential to do? Or are you going to just fall back on your usual, you know, hot shot plea bargain sort of basis? And that brings up one other thing about Galloway, and that is she is one of his reflection characters. That's just the jargon, the term I use for a character who's aligned with the hero. Remember, the hero has a visible goal that they want to achieve. The reflection is the character is going to help that hero achieve the goal. She and Weinberg are both reflections because they're both there to help him get that reduced sentence or that acquittal. But on the inner journey level, it's the character who is going to point out the inner conflict to the hero, hold the hero's feet to the fire, and every time the hero is retreating into his safe identity, is going to say to him, this isn't you. In this case, it's her saying, you need to be a real lawyer and stop falling back on your usual identity. That's pretty much for both the outer journey and inner journey level, how stage one and stage two work. Now we come to the second key turning point, what I call the change of plans. This is the moment when the hero has now formulated the goal they want to achieve. In his case, he's going to get the best plea bargain he can for these defendants, and they begin pursuing it. Now, the point to notice if you're a screenwriter or filmmaker, or even if you're a novelist, that Whatever the outer motivation, whatever this visible goal your hero is going to pursue that defines your movie, your hero shouldn't start actually pursuing it and taking action to cross that finish line until the beginning of Act Two. You've got to take an entire 25% of your screenplay just to build up to your hero taking those first steps. Everything up to now has been him gathering information to figure out what are we going to do. It's only when he takes that first step of going to Guantanamo that he's now moving toward the goal. And this is stage three, what I call progress. Because his plan is, okay, I'm going to get the facts and I'm going to juggle them around and figure out a way that I can get them off with the least sentence possible. And that's when he meets another key character in the story, and that is his nemesis. That's my term for the person who is at cross purposes with the hero. If the reflection is there to help the hero, the nemesis is the one who wants to stop the hero from achieving his goal. He's the one in opposition. He's the villain, in this case more like a villain, but he could be an opponent if it's a sports story, or it could be a rival if it's a love story or romantic comedy, but it's somebody who goes against the villain. And when we meet Jessup, that's the Jack Nicholson character, a few things are apparent immediately. One is he is way more powerful than Caffey is. This is a must. When you're writing a screenplay or a story of any kind, you always want your nemesis to exceed your hero in their power and abilities and strength and so on. It must seem like it's going to be impossible for your hero to overcome the nemesis. So Jessup has all the power, all the rank. He puts Caffey down. Caffey is like 
sort of meek with him and shy and just wants to get out of the situation. He seems almost wimpy in the face of Nathan Jessup, which is exactly as it should be because now we're involved. Now we realize the conflict is big and the bigger the conflict, the more our emotional involvement in the story. So he starts working and working and working towards, Kathy does, toward figuring out or putting together his defense for them. Now on the inner journey level, remember he's got this tug of war going on between his identity, his safe persona that keeps him stuck in a place that is familiar in his comfort zone but is not going to lead to any fulfillment. And by the way, I don't think I mentioned this, the rule is if the hero doesn't move into his essence, if the hero is not able to shed his identity and have the courage to live his truth, he cannot achieve the goal. He doesn't realize that. The hero at this point in the story thinks he'll pursue this goal so he can keep his identity in place. But it will always follow, because you as the writer are going to make it this way, that unless the hero finds the courage to leave his identity, he's not going to get that goal. So now your hero is vacillating, moving into his essence a bit because he's got to to move closer to the goal, but that becomes very scary because he's lost his armor, his emotional protection is gone, so then he'll retreat and go back into his identity. So you'll see when you watch the movie, or if you watch the movie again, as you watch this during this stretch, Caffey is at times going to seem like a really good lawyer. He's going to do smart things, he's going to figure out things, he's going to know how to manipulate things, not Caffey, but some of the other characters. He's coming up with ideas. Other times he just wants to back off, just get a plea bargain or whatever, until finally when he realizes his defendants are not cooperating at all, he says, I can't understand these guys, I'm going to quit. I'm, I'm going to get the lawyer replaced. And he makes that threat right before we reach the next key turning point, what I call the point of no return. The point of no return is going to be at the exact midpoint. It's the point at which something happens that makes the hero fully commit to the goal. Because in stage three, in the progress stage, the hero is still vacillating. He's got one foot in and one foot out. So Caffey knows he's supposed to do this, but he always leaves open the option of leaving, of giving over to another lawyer, of not doing anything to make waves. But then, because Galloway confronts him and says, and this is where another inner conflict moment is, he, she, she's arguing with him, and, and he, she says, were daddy's, so expect, were daddy's expectations so great that you're not willing to actually defend these guys? And he says, spare me the psychobabble, and they have a big argument. And then Weinberg, his other reflection, his friend says, you want to use an argument that didn't work at, at Nuremberg? And, and Kathy jumps in and says, these guys aren't Nazis. These are two poor, you know, Marine cadet or Marine privates or corporals who did something, you know, that they were probably under orders to do. And then Galloway turns to him and says, be careful, you're making an argument, meaning you're starting to be a lawyer. And again, she's functioning as a reflection who's saying, don't back into your identity, this is your essence, follow that. And so because of that, the next day when he goes in to ask for a different attorney and he says, instead of doing that, he enters a plea of not guilty because his defendants were not willing to take the plea he got 
uh, from the Kevin Bacon character because they said that wouldn't be honorable. So now he's putting everything on the line because if he pleads not guilty, he doesn't think he can win. And if he tries to win by accusing another officer of committing a crime, he could be court-martialed for doing that. So now we're moved into stage four, what I call complications and higher stakes. And this is when the outside world starts closing in, meaning this is when new facts come to light he didn't know, means Jessup knows that he's after him, so they're gonna try and manipulate more stuff to go against him. It means um, the uh, soldier Markinson shows up, but says, I'm not willing to testify. So he comes into the picture because he's the one who knows the truth about what happened and the only one who might be willing to tell them what really went on there. But he says, I won't testify. So things are getting tougher and tougher. That's the complications. The higher stakes mean if Caffey loses now, he loses everything. There's more to lose by failure and more to gain by success. And now the obstacles get bigger and bigger and bigger. In stage four, the complications and higher stakes, we see how the obstacles get bigger and bigger and bigger. They come closer and closer together to, make the, to accelerate the pace until finally what's going to happen is the hero encounters an obstacle that it's going to be impossible to overcome. And this is the moment that I call the major setback. It's something, again, that happens to the hero. And at that moment, your reader and your audience must believe that there's now no possibility of the hero succeeding. It seems like all is lost. And that's what the hero believes as well. And what the major setback in, in this movie is the uh, officer who he was going to call on the stand, who was the only one that would tell him the truth about the code red being ordered by Jessup, uh, Markinson is the character's name, he kills himself. He was, the night before he was supposed to go testify, he kills himself. Now their only witness to what really happened is gone. And so we have this scene right after that suicide where he comes back and he informs Galloway and Weinberg about what happened. He's drunk and he is just railing about what occurred and he says, I'm giving up, he yells at her and so on. What he's doing is he's reacting to the major setback by retreating. Because when your hero encounters this big obstacle and gets thrown by it, they're going to attempt to go back to the life they were living at the beginning. He's going to go attempt to go back and be the, in his identity, the hotshot lawyer who doesn't care about anything. He says, I can't do anything for them. There's no hope. I'm going to give up. I'm no good, and so on. And it seems like all is lost. Their response is going to be to retreat. They're going to give up, and they're going to attempt to go back to where they were at the beginning of the story, in the setup. So he go, wants to go back, he wants to give up on his clients and say, there's nothing I can do. He wants to just, I, he doesn't even say what he's going to do, just let him be found guilty because he has no hope. But he's also trying to retreat into his identity. He no longer is willing to move into that essence that he's steadily been moving into where he really is a good lawyer, where he really is risking not being as good as his father was, where he's really willing to face that fear and be courageous enough to overcome it. But once he encounters this and he knows they're going to lose because he has no witness, he wants to go back. So he gets drunk and he yells at them until insults Galloway deeply and says there's no point in doing this and so on. He's just very mean. 
And so Galloway leaves with this great line, I'm sorry I cost you a set of steak knives because that was a joke he made earlier in his flippant way. So he leaves and he's sitting there with Weinberg. And then we learn more about his father. We've already know his father was the, the uh, um, attorney general, but there's a moment when he says, you know, I think my father would have been proud of me. I think he, it would have made him happy to see me graduate from law school. That's all he ever says about his father, but we see that there's something he lost with his father dying as, as early as he did before he finished law school. Part of it at least was he went to law school to make his father proud. So obviously that was something he deeply wanted and didn't get to have, especially if he was so intimidated by his father and his father had so many expectations that he didn't think he was good enough. And that's what instilled this whole identity. And so Weinberg says, you know, I did a paper on your father once. He was one of the greatest lawyers ever. He was one of the greatest criminal defense lawyers ever. And he says, but if I were these two guys, if I were Downey and Dawson, the two Marines who've been accused, and I had a choice between being defended by your father and being defended by you, I'd take you any day of the week and twice on Sunday. And that's this reflection character saying, I see the truth of who you are. I see your essence. You're the one who can do this. You're better than your father was. You can't let that stop you. And that's everything that, that, that um, Galloway has been saying to him the whole movie. You're good up there in court. I can see the effect you have. You're a great lawyer, she's told him in the past. So when he hears that, then he finally realizes, okay, I can't give up. And now he goes, he, he moves into stage five, which is the final push. He's gonna put everything on the line to achieve this goal or die trying. He goes and gets Galloway, says, I'm sorry, I said that, I'm going to put Jessup on the stand because that's the most dangerous thing he can do because if he doesn't get Jessup to confess, then he can be arrested and court-martialed for accusing an officer of committing a felony. And that's what's going to bring us to the final push and the climactic moment in the movie. Okay, so here is our big moment. And I have a confession to make. I have lectured about this movie before. I love the movie. I've seen it just for my own enjoyment probably at least five times. And I've watched selected clips from this movie dozens. And I was going over just to look at the turning points on the timer clock. And I came to this scene between Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson, between Jessup and being questioned by, by our hero. And I couldn't resist. I couldn't stop watching. It is so compelling. So it's just, it's to me just one of the great scenes. And any scene that can come out with a line like, you can't handle the truth, that everybody in the world now recognizes, that's, that's pretty good screenwriting. So anyway, all that's left in the climax is for everything to play itself out. It's for him, who, it's for this character who has now found the courage to move fully into his essence, to live fully in this terrifying but true state. It's, he's living his truth, that he does have the potential to be a great lawyer, and he's willing to put everything on the line for it. And since he's found that courage, the rule, storytelling rule is he must win. 
He must win the case. So he comes up against Jessup. He plays against Jessup's own ego and his, his own sort of identity that he won't be able to leave. And he gets him to admit, I ordered the code red. And that moment when he says that and we know the trial is essentially over, that's the climax. Now, there is one beat left and we have to get the uh, verdict that's given, but it's almost like an, an after effect because the main thing we want to know is, does he, does he get his clients off of the hook for murder and, and overcome the nemesis who's trying to stop him because he's the real villain of the piece? Now, when the verdict is delivered, I think for the sake of not giving it too rosy and everything in a neat bow ending, they, they get acquitted of the murder, they still get uh, uh, court-martialed or, or, or not court-martialed but whatever it is when you're sent out of the Marine Corps out of the service because of what they did but then he passes on his wisdom to them because now we've moved into the final stage what I call the aftermath we need to see the new life the hero is living now that he has now that he's made this journey, now that he's found the courage to transform, now that he's accomplished his goal. And so what we see is, after they take Jessup away and the verdict is delivered, he goes to Dawson and Downey, he says, you don't need to wear a uniform to have a code and to find honor. What he's also saying is, you gave me that. You taught me to have a code. You taught me to be honor because his code is the law. He says at one point in the movie, I know the law. And that's right before he's going to go, go fully defend them in stage five. So he knows the law. And then when they're getting ready to leave, um, Dawson says, attention, there's an officer in the room and he salutes him. And he refused to salute him earlier in the movie when he was fully in his identity. But now that he's in, he's in his essence, he, he is recognized by this other soldier, by this Marine rather, as someone who has a code and is deserving of this respect. And so he gets a salute. And then they leave and then the final thing is him saying, so this is what a courtroom looks like. And then he leaves and we know he's gonna go on to have the rewards of doing this. And one of the key things also to notice about this scene is not only are Downey and Dawson helped, but the law has been served because Jessup is gone and, and there, there's something about everything is in a better place than it was before. And this is one of the things that you want to show in the aftermath, that the hero's courage not only benefits him, but benefits those around him as well and by implication benefits the audience as well because it is my belief that when we empathize with a character who's able to transform and find that kind of courage because we are we've become that character subconsciously it means we've had the experience of being courageous we've had the experience of living our truth we've had the experience of showing that kind of bravery and having a little piece of that transformation and i think that's one of the great things we take away from great stories is we take away an understanding and experience of courage and we can put that into our own lives and maybe just be a little bit more courageous in our own lives and facing our own obstacles and overcoming our own identities to live our truth as well. Let's take the courtroom scene mm -hmm. in A Few Good Men and uh, 
break it down by beats and what are some of the parts that make it so memorable, aside from the infamous line from uh, Jessup toward the end? Sure. Well, it depends if you're talking about the whole courtroom, the whole trial, because the trial actually begins at the midpoint, uh, for sure, and, and then it ends at the climax, really, and carries all the way to the end of the movie. So through the whole trial, it's been using a number of sort of key structural devices. One is you want to, you want to move back and forth between the hero being in control and the opposition being in control. So you want the audience to be kept a little bit off balance. At times we think, okay, now that Kathy really is winning, but then, then the Kevin Bacon character, I forget his name, the, the prosecuting attorney, he comes back, oh no, now he's winning. Oh no, now he's winning and now he's winning. So you don't want it to just be bad, 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 and then good, 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 good. It's gotta go back and forth, back and forth. So there's sort of peaks and valleys to the emotional, experience of that overall sequence. The next thing you want to do is it also combines a couple of key structural devices. One is anticipation and one is surprise. Anticipation means we're trying to figure out what's going to happen next. And you can increase that device or you can strengthen that tool if you use what I refer to as superior position. So let your audience know something that some of the characters don't know. For example, we know that Kathy's going to try and going to call Jessup and try and get him to admit what he did, but nobody else knows. So we're anticipating what's going to happen when Jessup gets up there. How is he going to go about doing that? So that's actually curiosity as well as anticipation. Okay, we anticipate um, the, that what's going to happen when he calls up the airmen that were in the flight tower for this non-existent flight and calls them up to testify. So we're curious about that. Are we anticipating what's that going to be like? And, and we're anticipating what's he going to do now that um, Murkison or whatever his name is has committed suicide. So a lot of it is what's going to happen now? What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? But sometimes the audience doesn't want to try and predict what's going to happen next. They want to be totally surprised. So the surprise is, um, one surprise is when we learn later that those two guys from the tower didn't know anything about the flight. They were just a red herring. They were just to make, um, make uh, Jessup believe that he had evidence that he didn't have. We weren't given that information ahead of time, we in the audience. So that created a twist, that created surprise. So sometimes you want to lead your audience toward anticipating and expecting something. Sometimes you want to turn the tables on them or jump out and go boo or do something that's completely unexpected. The next thing that makes that work is the obstacles, just like through the movie, are getting bigger and bigger. So the testimony becomes harder and harder and harder to get to the truth. And finally comes Jessup, who we know is going to be the most difficult thing to overcome. I mean, just imagine the movie if Jessup was the first witness. And then after that, we had Cuba Gooding Jr., who was one of the, one of the small parts in this movie. It's ridiculous to anticipate because instinctively we all know you've got to save the biggest and the best for last. And then, even in that final confrontation where Jessup's on the stand, it's like 
Okay, we, we have some more superior position and that is we know that he's terrified of doing this and that if he fails, he's going to get court-martialed. Now, the other characters may realize that, but they're not, they aren't, aren't aware of how frightened Kathy is and they don't know what he has up his sleeve like we in some ways do. We know he's going to use the, the shirts that he saw in his closet, but we don't know how. So again, it's just this, this combination of surprise, anticipation, curiosity, conflict, peak moments, small moments. And then one last thing, and that is if you just look at the arc of Jessup's testimony, you will see that it starts out everything Kathy's trying to get him to say doesn't really get very far. Yeah, he's showing him the phone logs and yeah, he's showing him he didn't pack and there are questions, but he's, but Jessup is just very confident. He says, is this all you got? You know, foot lockers and phone calls? You know, I hope you got something more than that. These people are, they're on trial for their lives. And he's so sure of himself. But then as soon as he asks him, why two commands? Why the two orders? If he was so safe because of the first order, why did he have to be sent away from the base? And then we see the turn. And now we see that everything's going to shift. And where it seemed like Kathy was going down and Jessup was, go was rising, now it shifts. And now Ka Kathy is in control until finally Jessup sort of, you know, um, ruins his own future by confessing that he, he, and he of course, did order, order the code red. It's just all those things in such a wonderful combination that's really hard to pick it apart that way because it still takes away the magic of it because when you see it, you just get so caught up in it.